From points across California, you're listening to the Disneyland edition of the Diz Unplugged. This is the Diz Unplugged Disneyland edition, episode 342 for the week of September 11, 2014. The Diz Unplugged Disneyland edition is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel, helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. Visit them on the web at www.dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hello everyone and welcome to the show. I am your host Tom Bell. I'm joined by our Disneyland team, Mary Jo Malata-Willie and Michael Bowling. And in this segment, Michael continues his lead up to Disneyland's 60th birthday. Where did we leave off, Michael? We left off at opening day. Ah, okay, cool. And now we're going to look at the first 12 months of Disneyland. In 257 working days, they built Disneyland. Despite the apparent success of Disneyland on its opening day celebration on July 17, 1955, the next morning's newspaper reviews were highly critical of Walt Disney and his newborn park. They accused him of creating long lines and high prices by trying to recoup his entire investment in the first year. Although Walt Disney had become used to the sting of critics over the years, he was frustrated by the lack of appreciation for his struggling young park. A United Press writer cornered Walt on a second trip to see if any changes had been made. He discovered more drinking fountains and all but one of the attractions finally in working order. But then he asked about the park's prices and he touched off a Walt Disney who was finally tiring of the commercial rap. We have to charge what we do because this park costs a lot to build and maintain. I have no government subsidy. Subsidy. The public is my subsidy, Walt argued. I mortgaged everything I own and put it in jeopardy for this park. Commercial. How have I stayed in business all my life? The critics must know a newspaper exists on advertising. They're crazy. We have a lot of free things in the park. No other place has as high a quality. I stand here in the park and talk to people. It's a most gratifying thing. All I've got from the public is thank yous. In fact, no one was more sensitive or sympathetic to the needs of the guests than Walt Disney. During the first year, he made countless trips to the park, calling for lengthy and intense walkthroughs with his key personnel. I always keep a practical eye towards its appeal to the public, he said. Learning from the public was a continual process for Walt. Learning the guests' needs, desires, and interests took Walt to Disneyland for many walkthroughs. These often took place late in the day, causing him to remain in the park overnight in his town square apartment above the fire station. More than once, he was awakened at dawn by the sound of jackhammers, In an instant, Walt would be up and out on the street talking to the workmen to grasp the problem being worked on and toss it back to his engineers and designers to solve it quickly. Walt Disney spent a lot of time in the park. He insisted on standing in long lines with paying guests. He could frequently be seen talking with children to gauge their reactions to the park and its attractions. Before he would leave his apartment, Walt would sign a stack of photocards to pass out along his walks. Walt wouldn't let the landscapers fence in the lawns until he first saw where the guests wanted to go. If they often cut across a particular grass area, 
Walt saw that as a signal that sidewalks needed to be poured in that section. Mm -hmm. Walt also expected his designers to go to Disneyland as often as possible to check the attractions they had worked on. Said John Hench, he required that we walk through the front gate and stand in line with the guests to listen and watch, to see how they reacted. I don't know of any other design firm that's ever had this privilege. Just one month after the park opened, Mother Nature seemed determined to test Walt's patience. Fifteen degrees of a hundred degree, or fifteen days of a hundred degree weather, combined with ninety percent humidity, do- dove attendance down to a trickle. Sounds like Florida. <laughs> uh-huh. okay. Walt was seen out in front of the Golden Horseshoe, wondering aloud if the paying public would ever come back again. When weekly paychecks were issued, members of the management team were told not to cash theirs until they were certain all the hourly employees' checks were covered by the dwindling bank funds. Wow. Many events took place in Disneyland during its first few months to increase public awareness to this new form of Disney entertainment. In Washington, D.C., the park's grand opening was announced into the congressional record by the Honorable James B. Utt of California during a session of the House of Representatives. A constant stream of celebrities and Hollywood stars, including Groucho Marx, Kirk Douglas, Frank Sinatra, Walter Pidgeon, Roy Rogers, Benny Goodman, and the 1955 Cleveland Indians made well-publicized visits to the park. In September, Fess Parker acted as personal guide around the park for Vice President Richard Nixon and his family. Disneyland celebrated a series of highly publicized shop and restaurant grand openings. The new Red Wagon Inn gave out free copies of the 1956 Souvenir Guide. Merlin's Magic Shop offered free Swiss Warbler bird calls. And there were free Fritos with every dish at the Frito House in Frontierland. (laughs) Actress Dorothy Lemoore was on hand to break a bottle of Mississippi River water over Lafitte's ancient anchor when it was dedicated in a New Orleans section of Frontierland. When the new Frito House and the Aunt Jemima Kitchen were opened together in New Orleans area of Frontierland, both Aunt Jemima and the Frito Kid arrived in a stagecoach during the ceremony as the Dixieland Band played when the Saints come marching in. A list of Disneyland entertainments expanded and visitors found a continuing variety of free attractions as exhibits and displays became prominent within Main Street storefronts and around the park. Parents could photograph their children posing with Davy Crockett and other Disney characters at the Artist Corner located at the end of Main Street. Old-time camera and rare photographic equipment were seen in the Eastman Kodak shop. Examples of early medical science and pharmacology were on display in the Upjohn Pharmacy. There were old locks in the Yale and Town Shop and early music machines in the Wurlitzer store. Curious guests could stop by the Site of Future Sites area along a Main Street construction fence where Kodak Stereo 2 viewers were mounted at different heights as if they were peepholes so guests could view three 
views 3D color slides of a scale model by Wed of the proposed International Street, which was to face Town Square. Guests would cross over a scale reproduction of London Bridge, with little barges passing underneath. From there they could visit an English cottage with a water wheel grinding grain, a reproduction of the French Quarter, the Italian area, and a German-Bavarian compound. The rides would have included a taxicab through Paris and a cog railway traveling up and down the street. International Street would ultimately become the World Showcase in Epcot Center at Walt Disney World. The Red Wagon Inn hosted a Disney arts ex- artists exhibit, display of oil and watercolor paintings by Disney artists, including Harper Goff, Walter Paragoy, Bill Mahood, and Bruce McIntyre. In Frontierland, the new Davy Crockett Arcade presented Navajo tribal traditions with muslin painting and blanket weaving. Also in the arcade was an area decorated as the Alamo, which showcased a collection of rare pistols, rifles, bowie knives, and trappings of the type once used by Davy Crockett. In late 1955, a major film production display by the Society of Motion Picture Art Directors was sponsored in Tomorrowland. Artwork, photos, and sets from the films like Giant, High Noon, Forbidden Planet, Rear Window, Guys and Dolls, and The Egyptian were shown. Disney productions were represented, including Pinocchio, Song of the South, and Sleeping Beauty, which was in production. Many of the models used in the construction of Disneyland were also placed on view for this exhibit. In the following months, permanent exhibits were opened in cooperation with America's most respected industrial and commercial corporations. American Motors presented the last word in cinematography with their 15-minute Sirkar Rama film. Richfield Oil provided a capsule history of Earth's evolution in the world beneath us. Monsanto's Hall of Chemistry and Kaiser Aluminum's Chemitron presented chemical and metallic wonders in Tomorrowland. In April 1956, Frontierland's Mineral Hall opened, allowing guests to see the spectacular rainbow glow room free of charge. Disneyland provided an increasingly complete show by adding many themed performing groups and costume cast members. Beginning on opening day, the Firehouse 5 plus 2 was featured around the park, playing Dixieland Jazz at the Firehouse on Main Street and in the Golden Horseshoe Saloon. The Disneyland band appeared daily in complete uniform, with occasional assistance from their own Keystone Cops saxophone band. In the early days, Disneyland was not populated with the familiar characters from Disney cartoons and films. Roy Disney was very protective of Mickey Mouse and the other major Disney characters, and he did not want them associated with the park if it failed. Secondary characters, oh, okay. yes, yeah, secondary characters Tinkerbell and Jiminy Cricket were associated with Disneyland on television and in advertising. People were hired to create characters that embellished and enhanced the themes of each land of the park. Today they are called streetmosphere characters. Full-blooded Indians, 
that's in quotes, danced in the Indian village or attacked the Conestoga, wag- Conestoga wagons along the trail. In Frontierland, Black Bart held up the Santa Fe and Disneyland steam trains and the horse-drawn stagecoaches and always lost gunfights in front of the Pendleton Woolen Mill with Sheriff Lucky or Town Marshal Wally Bogue. Sheriff hmm. Sheriff Lucky and Black Bart would also act as greeters and help provide security in Frontierland. Knights and ladies in medieval regalia performed their Fantasyland pavane, whilst one the one-legged Captain Guy Exxon and his pirate Paco could be found at the Chicken of the Sea pirate ship restaurant. Tomorrowland had Spaceman K-7. The costume was oversized, very heavy and very hot. The actor had his head inside a plexiglass helmet with only a small hole for ventilation. There was a rumor that he was very popular because he kept a transistor radio inside this suit and updated guests on the latest summer baseball scores. (laughs) Oh, nice. He was frequently joined by Space Girl. The most well-known Disneyland character was Trinidad Ruiz, Ruiz, the street sweeper with a broom, push cart, broad white mustache, spotless white costume, and tall white hat. He was known as the most photographed man on Main Street. Trinidad was a turn-of-the-century white wing who swept up after the horses that made their way up and down Main Street. Also on Main Street was Disneyland's organ grinder, Sam Ayeza, who cranked out My Wild Irish Rose whilst his ring-tailed monkey, Josephine, tipped her hat. By the time that hectic summer had turned into winter, most of the problems had been worked through. Many of the critics were placated, and the word was out that Walt had everything running smoothly. Now everyone wanted to be a part of Disneyland. Walt and his staff at WED were inundated with ideas for new attractions. Offers to sell prized possessions that would be perfect for Disneyland poured in. People offered everything from a giant steam calliope to a trained rabbit named Junior. It was a full-time job just to say no thank you. (laughs) Public interest in Disneyland was reaching phenomenal levels. Families from every state were piling into their cars and spending their vacations driving across the country to visit the park that was born on television. We had an appointment with Walt for dinner one time, John Hinch recalled, and he came in a little late. As usual, he'd been strolling around in the crowds at the park. When he came in, he smiled and said, There's a lot of happy people out there. I saw a lot of happy faces. Most likely, the happiest face of all was Walt's. Hmm. One major problem became apparent quickly. When the park opened, each guest bought a general admission ticket at the main gate and individual tickets for each attraction. The constant reaching into the pocket gave many families the impression Disneyland was an expensive place to visit. Soon, the most creative ticket system of all time was put into use. The most popular attractions, like the Jungle Cruise and the Mark Twain, were plagued with long lines. 
Disneyland officials were perplexed by their inability to get the crowds to try out the smaller attractions, which had short or no lines. This problem led to the creation of the famous Disneyland Ticket Book. Initial surveys had shown the average dollar spent per person was, get this, $2.66. Oh my gosh. <laughs> On October 11th, 1955, the park made available the Day at Disneyland Ticket Book at $2.50 for adults and included one general admission and eight attraction coupons in three price categories a through C. The ticket categories reflected the prestige or cost of an attraction. The books rated the attractions from least expensive A, such as a ride on a Main Street vehicle, to C, which allowed you to board the Jungle Cruise. Once guests started finding A and B tickets in their pockets, having paid for them up front, they were more willing to investigate the smaller attractions. The ticket books had many benefits. They helped distribute guests throughout the park, helped in forecasting attraction capacity, and gave cast members an opportunity to interact with guests as they passed over their tickets. The idea worked far beyond anyone's expectations, and the popularity of the ticket book grew dramatically in the years ahead. For many young Disneyland guests, the coupons became their first standard for bartering in their neighborhoods as they saved and traded their coupons from past visits, the way earlier generations had collected baseball cards. One of the first attraction changes was to the Disneyland Railroad. Whilst the attraction was popular and guests were enthusiastic about boarding the passenger train, almost all rejected the freight train. They especially resented being put into the cattle cars, and in protest, guests would bellow and moo like animals as they were herded <laughs> into the cars. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> the freight train was quickly remodeled as another passenger train. The first summer, the Mark Twain not only ruled as Queen of the River, she was the sole boat on the rivers of America. By the Christmas holidays, the nationwide Davy Crockett craze was in full swing. Davy Crockett's keelboat race had been broadcast on November 16, 1955, and Davy Crockett and the River Pirates on December 14, 1955, as episodes of the Disneyland television show. To take advantage of Davy's sudden popularity, Two keelboats actually used in the filming of Davy Crockett and the River Pirates were specially modified to carry guests down the river. The Gully Wumper opened on December 25th, and the Bertha May set sail in May 1956. Ron Dominguez less than fondly remembers playing the role of Mike Fink, always having to lose his jousting contests with hero Davy Crockett by being knocked off his keelboat into the chilly river. Explorers like Davy Crockett weren't the only Frontierland settlers to make their homes at Disneyland. Real live Indians set up camp during the first summer in a tiny village, then migrated the next year to a more spacious village along the shores of the rivers of America. Guests visiting the Indian village were invited to take part in authentic ceremonial dances and could purchase handmade souvenirs 
at the Indian Trading Post. That is such a fond memory that I have of going to the Indian village and watching them dance and then participating in the friendship dance. Same for me. I, I loved that as a little boy, mm-hmm. going to that. Walt Disney was directly responsible for one of the biggest Disneyland flops. Walt always loved a good circus. The work that <laughs> Disney animators put into Dumbo was a work of love and some of the most imaginative animation ever created. Years later, Dumbo's terrifying drunken nightmare, Pink Elephants on Parade, hmm. seemed to come to life when the circus came to Disneyland on November 11th, 1955, with the opening of the Mickey Mouse Club Circus, which was scheduled to run for six weeks during the Christmas season. The idea met with opposition from some of Walt's staff. C.V. Wood, vice president and general manager of Disneyland, argued, Walt, you just can't do this. A circus always plays itself. The guy comes to Disneyland to stay around for four hours and see what you've got. He's not going to spend two of those hours at a damn circus. This criticism merely made Walt more determined. To gain more support for the idea, he decided the studio would eventually make a film called Toby Tyler or Ten Weeks with a Circus. He then convinced his brother Roy they would need a huge circus tent and old circus wagons he had located so they could be used for the film. Of course, all these items found their way to Disneyland. (laughs) The world's largest striped tent was raised at the far north section of the park, just behind Holiday Hill, which was a pile of dirt left over from the Sleeping Beauty castle moat. The tent was heated and there was a separate fee for the circus. Ads for the one-hour show declared the circus was personally produced by Walt Disney to introduce his Mouseketeers to the public. Members of the Mickey Mouse Club television show performed circus stunts, accompanied by the March of Toys with all the famous Disney characters and Santa Claus, Bob O. the Disneyland Clown, and Serenado the Wonder Horse. The most exciting act was Professor Keller and his feline fantastics, an exciting and educational experience with 13 of the world's most deadly killers. Joe Fowler remembered opening night as if it were a recurring nightmare. Walt and I were sitting together. The first thing that happened, Owen Pope brought his big pumpkin chariot into the huge circus tent, pulled by six of his most beautiful ponies. One of the wheels caught a large diagonal post that held the big top up and carried it away. I thought, oh no, my God, no. But fortunately, the tent still held up. According to Fowler, things just got worse. One of his staff came running up and said, Joe, the llamas have escaped. (laughs) Excusing himself from Walt, Fowler and his staff chased the llamas along the railroad track finally recapturing them at the Main Street Station. When he returned, Walt told him, Well, Joe, you missed the best part of the show. One of the leading ladies bent down and split her tights. The troubles continued. The circus people were used to drinking and gambling between shows. During the premiere of the circus parade, a black panther grabbed the paw of a neighboring tiger and chewed it off. 
The, oh my gosh. <laughs> the biggest problem came from the public, which just didn't want to see a circus. The circus left town on January 8th, 1956. C.V. Wood had been right. The big top was a big flop. Joe Fowler said, That was the first time that we learned this lesson. People came to Disneyland to see Disneyland. The area where the circus had been held was prepared for the installation of Junior Utopia. Attractions weren't the only thing Walt was changing. A Billboard magazine article on January 28, 1956 was brief. C.V. Wood was out as vice president and general manager of Disneyland five months before his one-year contract ended and would be replaced by a committee headed by Jack Sayers starting February 1st. C.V. Wood's leadership had been critical in getting Disneyland built. However, he also tried to build a team within the Disneyland organization that was loyal only to him. Walt would never accept that kind of disloyalty. Wood left with a healthy parting bonus and would sell himself as the master builder of Disneyland until Walt Disney Productions sued and wanted to prohibit Wood from using that title. Bob Gerwin asked about C.V. Wood said he was clearly a con man and certainly behaved that way. Another of the early problems Walt ran up against was the outside staff he had hired to provide many of the park services in which his own people lacked expertise. Dick Nunes remembered, Walt didn't have an experienced staff at the beginning. He tried to go out and get the best experts in things we knew nothing about. We had outside operators for the parking lot, security, custodial, and even for crowd control. At that time, the food and merchandise people were employed by the lessees who signed operating contracts that provided Disney with much-needed cash. The crowd control employees yelled at the customers. They lasted only one day, according to Nunes. The custodial company's standards were low. The security guards heavy-handed. It was a disaster, Nunes concluded. The only employees who really worked out well were the attraction operators. That's because we hired and trained them ourselves. The others just didn't understand what Walt really wanted. What Walt really wanted were employees with a ready smile and the ability to deal pleasantly with large numbers of people. He quickly replaced most of the outsiders with more of his own staff and trained them in his own Disney University. Mm. A new vocabulary was created that replaced traditional amusement park lingo. Paying customers became guests, each one to be treated as a VIP. Employees were dubbed hosts and hostesses. And all members of the entire Disneyland organization, including Walt, were to be addressed by their first names to ensure a casual, relaxed, and friendly atmosphere. Public areas were referred to as on stage, behind the scenes as backstage. Even the term ride was replaced by attraction or adventure after guests said they wanted to go on the Mark Twain or the Jungle Cruise, but they didn't want to go on the rides. The graduates of Disney University quickly fulfilled the standards of excellence for service that Walt had set. 
The top priority for Jack Sayers and his management team in 1956 was to fix what did not work and add attractions as quickly as possible to absorb the growing crowds. Disneyland launched a $1.5 million expansion program that included new attractions in almost every land. The management team recommended an administration building be built. Walt immediately opposed the idea. I don't want you guys sitting behind desks, he said. I want you out in the park, watching what people are doing and finding out how you can make the place more enjoyable for them. Stand in line with the people, and for God's sake, don't go off the lot to eat like you guys have been doing. You eat in the park and listen to people, he reminded them. The public isn't coming here to see an administration building. The happiest place on earth began its second summer with an additional 40% ride capacity as several major new attractions opened. In Tomorrowland, an area known as the Wenmac Hobbyland, or the Flight Circle, provided a free 20-minute demonstration of flying model planes and fast-moving speedboats within a circular fenced enclosure 200 feet in circumference. Walt Disney had attended a hobby show in Los Angeles and became interested in these working models. Crane's Bathroom of Tomorrow opened and featured the next generation of bathroom fixtures and a laundrette, all done in citrus yellow. The bathroom was equipped with radiant heated floors and a Crane central air conditioning unit. Other displays included a mural depicting the history of sanitation in the home and a teardrop exhibit featuring the dramatic story of valves in the industry. The American Dairy Association updated their opening day exhibit by adding the dairy of the future with cows watching color television whilst milkmen with helicopters on their backs delivered milk. Nearby, the 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea exhibit, recovered from Davy Jones's movie locker, had been included in Tomorrowland because it represented atomic power submarine activity. A ticket booth, new signage, and additional lighting had been installed by January 1956, and this improved the various displays from the film. On view were Aranax's cabin, the completely furnished salon, the diving equipment in the fitting chamber, and the huge squid with its grasping tentacles. The art corner moved out of its temporary tent on Main Street into a permanent shop in Tomorrowland. Guests could purchase original Disney animation cells for, you're going to cry, $3.95, and advertising, no two are alike, a picture which will never have an exact duplicate. That's actually a lot of money, though, in, in relation to what you said the average people were paying two dollars and sixty six cents for the day. I know. So that's actually a lot of money, three ninety five. Anyway. I know, but don't you wish you could go back in time? Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> the first new attraction to open was Tomorrowland's Astrojet on March twenty fourth. They provided a thrilling spin through space in the area once occupied by the flag filled Court of Honor. A movie tradition was added to Main Street, USA. Oversized upcoming attraction posters were put on display so guests would know what to expect in Disneyland. The 36 by 54 inch posters were hand produced, silk screened and printed on high quality heavy paper stock. 
Some were traditional four-color printing, others were more complex with as many as 11 colors. Larger and more stylized than movie posters, they were placed on display in the entrance tunnels leading from the parking area and along the pathway into Tomorrowland. Two complete sets of movie posters were framed and mounted below the train station facing the incoming public. You might remember that from that scene in Saving Mr. Banks. To travel up and down Main Street in style, guests could ride on either the new motorized fire wagon or the new red six-passenger 1930s-style horseless carriage with a fringed canvas top, both designed by Bob Gurr. The horseless carriage became known as the Gurmobile. When one cast member was concerned the car might be vandalized, Walt said, Don't worry about it. Just make them beautiful and you'll appeal to the best side of people. They all have it. All you have to do is bring it out. One major addition Walt considered essential was an aerial tramway between Fantasyland and Tomorrowland, which would provide a spectacular view of Disneyland. Having heard about a potential system in Europe, he sent Joe Fowler to investigate it. Fowler returned on the weekend of the first rain of the rainy season in January 1956. No ordinary rain, it was a deluge. Walt had come to the park with Dick Irvine using surface streets because the freeway system was still incomplete. But they became flooded. That's okay, said Walt. We'll just spend the weekend right here if we have to. They had to. After testing Walt with record heat waves during the summer, Mother Nature was now going to test Walt with record rainfall that overtaxed the total water circulation system of the entire park. The canal boats of the world overflowed. The rivers of America overflowed. It was record-setting seven inches of rain in an area most people think of as a desert. But the weekend served an important purpose, as it gave Walt Disney, Joe Fowler, and Dick Irvine the time together to finalize the plans for the Alpine Tramway across Disneyland. The Skyway to Tomorrowland and the Skyway to Fantasyland, he got two for the price of one there, opened on June 23rd and was the first of its kind in the United States. Walt Disney presided over the dedication ceremony. The stranded cable extended 1,250 feet to connect Tomorrowland and Fantasyland. It was supported by four cross-braced towers. The tallest was 60 feet. The most prominent tower was on Holiday Hill. Publicity stated that the giant aluminum baskets would soar high in the air between these two lands over Holiday Hill and the Tomorrowland Lake. Imagineer Dick Stein designed the 42 spun metal gondolas. Each gondola sat two guests on patio chairs bolted to the floor. (laughs) (laughs) The number of gondolas could vary from 18 to 44, depending upon the need. A one-way trip took three and a half minutes. In tribute to the attraction's country of origin... The Fantasyland station was modeled after a Swiss chalet surrounded by a lush alpine garden. The Tomorrowland station was a modern sky station. Rivaling the Disneyland railroad cattle cars for guest dissatisfaction was the Fantasyland canal boats of the world, referred to as the Mudbank Ride by Dick Nunes. Hmm. 
<laughs> it was intended to be a journey past miniature recreations of the great landmarks of the world, but time and financial constraints prevented its completion. On opening day, the guests cruised past barren shores. The standard joke amongst Fantasyland cast members was, the miniature landscaping is so miniature you can't see it. Oh. <laughs> there was no such spiel because there was nothing to talk about, and cast members couldn't be heard because of the roar of the outboard motors. In the unlikely event, the boats even kept running. It took almost a year to transform the canal boats of the world into the kind of attraction Walt had originally planned. His early concept for a Lilliputian village populated with miniature animated figures had proven unworkable. So Lilliputian land became storybook land, where guests would ride canal boats past detailed miniature scenes from Walt's classic films. Walt Disney called on all the genius available at the studio to recreate in miniature three-dimensional scenes from the world's great folk tales and enter new worlds of enchantment that he had already presented in motion pictures. The storybook land models were scaled one inch to one foot and were made primarily of plywood covered in fiberglass. Walt wanted the scenes to be designed as if the characters were just out of sight. Miniatures were one of Walt's passions, and he was obsessed with the details. The $200,000 storybook land opened on June 18th. Guests rode in newly designed Dutch canal boats built by Robert Doris Boatworks. The gas outboard motors were replaced with quiet electric motors. There were five different styles of canal boats. Some had teapots on the roofs, others with two tillers, another with miniature stairs. The boats were 16 feet long and guided on rails. The initial fleet of 12 boats soon grew to 14, and they floated in a canal that held 465,000 gallons of water. Bill Martin was responsible for weaving the canal boats and Casey Jr.'s circus train together. According to Harriet Burns, Walt considered the Storybook Land canal boats a placeholder attraction until he could develop something even grander. He said to Harriet, we can do this little ride, and it will be a filler for the moment. Later on, we can take it out and put something else there. Also in Fantasyland, Dumbo's flying elephants had begun their flights in August 1955, and the Mickey Mouse Club Theater opened in September 1955. The initial program consisted of Disney short films, Lambert the Sheepish, Sheepish Lion, Out of Scale, The Big Wash, and Squatter's Rights. The 1956 program included a special 12-minute Technicolor Mickey Mouse Club program, 3D Jamboree, starring the Mouseketeers. Frontierland was the realm which received the most expensive, extensive development in the first year. The Indian village was moved farther out along the river, and a new family area called Magnolia Park opened near Adventureland. Guests could cross the footbridge, turn left along some meandering pathways between flower-filled planters to approach an old-fashioned bandstand where concerts were regularly held. The audience could sit on park benches or in rows of bench seats, which faced the gazebo, or watch the trains of the Santa Fe and Disneyland Railroad steam into Frontierland Station. 
Around the bend by Fowler's, Har- Fowler's Harbor, the new Mike Finn keelboats offered a trip along America's wilderness rivers. From the new Indian village by the river's edge, the Indian war canoes gave explorers a new perspective of the rivers of America. During Disneyland's first year, the island encircled by the rivers of America had been unavailable to guests. Now guests could board a Huck Finn raft and cross over to Tom Sawyer Island with Fort Wilderness overlooking the water, animals and Indian warriors visible in the forest, and a burning settler's cabin aglow in the distance. There was Hmm. Lookout Mountain, a suspension bridge that swayed when you crossed it, and mysterious Injun Joe's cave. Walt Disney's last and most complex addition to Frontierland that first year was inspired by his Academy Award-winning film The Living Desert. The Rainbow Cavern's mine train took guests across cactus-studded wastelands, recreating the great open spaces of the American Southwest, At a reported cost of $500,000, it was the most expensive addition. The attraction opened on July 2nd. Harper Goff worked on the original concept, and Bill Martin had begun serious planning immediately after the park opened. Bill Martin had the challenge of integrating the pack mules, stagecoaches, and Conestoga wagons into the same seven acres. For the actual Rainbow Caverns, Walt turned once again to his top animation background artist, Claude Coates, for a little studio magic. Walt had learned about fluorescent dyes that, when added to waterfalls, became brilliantly illuminated through the same black light used in the Fantasyland dark rides. So Coates experimented with all six rainbow colors falling side by side in one big wide waterfall. Each color was in a separate trough, he said, but as they hit the bottom, we needed to get them as close together as possible to be believable. But a mathematician who was working at the studio on another project told us that it was statistically impossible that the splash between the colors couldn't be controlled. He said the whole thing would be gray within a week. Coates reported this to Walt Disney, who responded with one raised eyebrow. Well, Claude... It's kind of fun to do the impossible, isn't it? Oh my gosh. Walt Disney left Coates with the problem, and after weeks of experimenting, Coates, working with John Hench, provided Walt with a solution, an ingenious entanglement of hair-like fibrous material that reduced splashing to nearly nothing. The publicity materials describing guest boarding describe guest boarding a cinder-spouting mine train for a journey around Rainbow Mountain and then passing through Rainbow Desert into beautiful rainbow caverns and fluorescent waters. Guests would then view unusual natural features, such as the underground river with flecks of gold and the stalactite and stalagmite caverns, which featured an unforgettable spectacle of multicolored waterfalls deep inside the mysteries of rainbow caverns. All of this would be presented with the world-famous Disney touch. The Rainbow Caverns mine train was Disneyland's first D-ticket attraction. Instead of the promised cinder-spouting locomotives, these trains used electric motors powered by batteries in a tender car. The four locomotives were designed by Roger Brogy and painted green with wooden cabs. 
Walt wanted to use live steam locomotives, but was stopped by Orange County officials, who were not pleased that Walt had three unlicensed steam engines already in the park. <laughs> Apparently, nobody had pulled permits for the two Disneyland Railroad locomotives and the Mark Twain. Each locomotive pulled six ore cars that could seat up to six guests on benches along the sides with a door and a jump seat. Each car had a speaker enabling guests to hear the live narration by either the engineer in the locomotive or the brakeman in the rear. The train traveled more than 1,700 feet on track in a long figure eight, and the ride took seven minutes. The backdrop for the loading area was the little mining town of Rainbow Ridge, a reproduction of a typical California mining town of the gold rush days. Designed by Bill Martin... He used forced perspective to recreate a frontier town with miniature facades for the last change saloon, the El Dorado Hotel, and the Rainbow Ridge Clarion. Lillian Disney was fond of the set, and she could frequently be found walking along the pathway with her husband when they spent the night in the park. The addition of the mine train meant changes to the original Frontierland attractions. The loading areas were arranged so the mine train and Rainbow Ridge were to the east. The pack mules were in the middle, and the Rainbow Mountain stagecoaches and Conestoga wagons shared the same loading area to the west. A trip on the pack mules or the wagons gave a whole different perspective as they traveled over the same terrain as the mine train. With the opening of Rainbow Caverns, the press release said, Walt Disney has brought to a close his Magic Wonderland's first major expansion program only days from completion of the park's first year. The program fulfills Walt's promise for this summer season of more room, more rides for fun. In the summer of 1956, Disneyland was one year old. Fantasyland and the other realms had become as beautiful as the initial Disney artwork had promised. Waterways and pathways had become natural with plantings maintained to the always springtime operating policy of the Disneyland landscape artists. The rivers of America now teemed with watercraft, and the other lands of the Magic Kingdom offered attractions which seemed to fill their borders. Walt Disney, known to the public from his television appearances, was now seen regularly around the park in the parade down Main Street and aboard his new attractions. Guests on Main Street would often say, Hi, Walt, and he would laugh with them, enjoying the appreciation of his audience. The park celebrated its first anniversary on July 17, 1956, with a cumulative attendance nearing the 4 million mark, making it the largest single private enterprise attraction in the Western Hemisphere. About 41% of the guests had come from outside California, a remarkable achievement at a time when transcontinental travel was difficult. The park claimed that guests from 64 nations had visited that first year. Park visitors had been surveyed several times during the first year, and an impressive 98% responded they would come back to Disneyland in the future. Here was the best of all measures of the Magic Kingdom. In just 12 short months, Walt Disney had quieted his critics, resolved the problems of opening day, and proved his new theme park Disneyland would be an unprecedented and continuing success. 
I've received several inquiries from listeners wanting to learn more about Disney history and what sources I use in my segments. Since I've been collecting books on Disney since I was a boy, many of the reference works I use are out of print. For my 60 years of Disneyland series so far, I've referred to The Disneyland Story, The Unofficial Guide to the Evolution of Walt Disney's Dream by Sam Genoway, who has been on our show, Disneyland The Nickel Tour by Bruce Gordon and David Mumford, Disneyland The Inside Story by Randy Bright, The E-Ticket Magazines, Early Disneyland Souvenir Guides and Books. Um, I, ha- I have them going all the way back to the park's opening day. Um, Walt's People series by Dieter Geis, The Vault of Walt books by Jim Corcus, and many personal interviews that I've done and, and presentations I've attended at um, Disney and Walt Disney Family Museum events. In future segments of my 60 Years of Disneyland series, I'll discuss significant events at Disneyland, explore the history of each realm, including past attractions and attractions that were never built and provide in-depth views into many of the park's attractions. Very cool. Thank you, Michael. You're welcome. That is going to do it for this segment of the Des Unplugged. Be sure to catch all of our other Disneyland shows this week. And of course, we'll be back again with you next week. Until then, remember, Disneyland is always more magical when it's shared. Thanks for listening.